have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to open them with me to the book of 1 Peter. The passage for today, as usual, is found in the insert in your bulletin as well as you can grab a Bible on the back cart. This is week nine in the book of 1 Peter, and this is week five in chapter two alone, a chapter where Peter has transitioned us from grounding us in a firm exilic gospel identity, we might say, to beginning to show us how this works itself out in everyday life. And yet, as we'll see this morning, the gospel is never too far away from Peter's lips and from Peter's mind. For those of you who were here last week, this is in part a a building upon a continuation of where we were last week. Peter's thinking about submission to authority. But there's also a theme that becomes prominent in these verses. It's a theme that is spoken of four times here, and it clings to the rest of Peter's letter. That theme is the theme of suffering. Suffering. Remember Peter's audience, they are people who knew suffering. They're beginning to figure out how their faith looks in a pagan world that is becoming increasingly hostile to their thinking and to their way of life, and it was proving difficult for them. You and I here this morning, though we might not know, in fact, I'm almost certain we don't know the extent of suffering that these first century Christians endured on account of their faith. We know some kind of suffering on account of our faith, don't we? Whether it be from family, whether it be from friends, whether it be from coworkers, Unfortunately, I think we are likely to know more and more suffering in the years to come. Our kids, Lord have mercy, are going to know more suffering than our generation. And so I want to hone in this morning as we continue Peter's letter and his line of thinking. I want to hone in not specifically on the command to be subject, which is the first word of our, or or the first phrase of our passage this morning, that that idea of showing honor and respect to those in authority over us, whatever they may be. We talked about that last week. Peter wants us to think this morning more about suffering. And so I invite you to listen carefully if you're able. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2 Verses 18 through the end of the chapter, 18 through 25, listen as I read. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. As we walk through this portion of God's Word this morning, for the next few minutes, I'd like to focus our hearts on two realities from this passage. And I want to begin actually at the back end of what I just read, verses 21 and what follows. I want to focus our hearts there on the first and foremost fact that you serve a suffering servant who has suffered for you. It's a little bit of a mouthful. You serve a suffering servant who has suffered for you. Understand, this is not what you need to do. This is what has been done for you. So I'm not speaking first of Jesus' example in suffering. We'll get to that, and we see some of that here in these verses. I'm wanting us first to think about his substitution. He suffered for you. He suffered in your place, so you wouldn't have to. This, my friends, as you know, this is the gospel in all its theological richness. We're going to unpack it for a minute, as Peter does here. We've been here recently, of course. Uh, We're always about the gospel, I hope, at this church. I want to tell you about the gospel every week that we come together to worship our God. But since Peter hangs so much of his thinking and phraseology on that passage of Scripture that we read earlier, Isaiah 53, you'll remember that we looked at that servant song in depth during the season of Advent. Well, let's focus on just three aspects of it quickly. The suffering servant was innocent. Verse 22, he committed no sin. In his 30-some years of walking on this planet in flesh and bone like us, in interacting with our brokenness, in being tempted by the devil, not once, not once did Jesus break the law of God. Not once did he do anything other than what was right and good and true. Not once. He was an ideal human in perfect fellowship with the Father as we were created to be. And because of this, Jesus became qualified to be the perfect, spotless Lamb of God without blemish. 
The suffering servant who suffered for you was innocent. He was also silent. Verses 22 and 23, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Oh, Jesus could have said so much. Don't you think Jesus wanted to say something? Don't you think he was tempted to say something? He could have defended himself. He could have indicted all of his accusers. He could have called legions and legions of angels to come to his aid but he didn't. His rights, what he was entitled to, he laid aside. He allowed to remain unspoken because, as Peter says, his trust was elsewhere. And doing this, the suffering servant did not only fulfill the Father's will and glory, but he begins to show us the way through suffering. He was innocent, he was silent, and he was the sin bearer. Here's the crux of it all, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have been healed. We've heard it over and over again this morning. We've we've sung about it. Jesus had no sin of his own, but he allowed himself to become legally sinful. Our sin, your sin, my sin, our past sin, our present sin, our future sin was all transferred to him on that day. And his body, that sinless body of Jesus, became the sacrifice that all the slain animals, that all the blood of the old covenant couldn't cover, couldn't accomplish. Hebrews 10, verses five through seven, consequently when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So yes, brothers and sisters, I call you once again to believe this. This happened in time and in space on Mediterranean soil long ago, but its implications in the spiritual realms couldn't be more profound. And so Peter writes here about the heart of the gospel because it's what he witnessed with his own eyes. By Jesus' wounds, we have peace with God. By his righteousness, we too are declared righteous before God. As I said weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 53 in depth, every other religion preaches, earn it, work for it, pay it. And the gospel proclaims, believe it. Believe that he has earned it for you. You serve a suffering servant, a suffering savior who suffered for you. But as Peter applies this reality to the life of 
of exiles, he wants us to see, to connect the dots between this death and a death in our own lives. And this is where the gospel theological becomes the gospel practical. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 7, 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And the fruit that Peter speaks of is the ability or the grace to suffer. And so the second truth this morning is not just that you have a suffering servant who suffered for you, but that you are a servant called to suffer. You are a servant called to suffer. If you call Jesus as your own, if you cling to his suffering as your only hope, then you too will suffer because of him, because he did. And before I unpack this a bit more, I want us to talk about that first word in our passage in verse 18, that first word that opens up this section. The word servants. This teaching on suffering is hard enough to swallow without this notion of of servants and masters that's spoken of here, right? Particularly because we are tempted to import all that we know in our history books, in this nation in particular, of slavery, this permanent racially driven servitude that stains our past as Americans. And we're, we're wanting to import all of that back into Peter's context. And I want to talk about this for a minute because Peter's context is not the same. It's not quite the same. The word translated servant here, it's a less common word. It's one that suggests service in a house. It's not the word doulos, slave. It's the word oiketai, a house servant. And in Roman society, in the Roman Empire in this day, there were literally millions in this tier of society. Many of them had become house servants through military conquests. What did they do? They were managers of estates. They were teachers. Some were even doctors. Many of them were beloved members of families. Some of them even lived on the top floor of the family residence. They were paid for their services and could often buy back their freedom. One commentator compared them, though I don't think the illustration or the analogy is perfect, but think of a graduate of one of our military academies who's bound to pay for an obligation with a certain number of years of his life. I say all that as an introduction not to let all the air out of the force of this command. I just simply want us to resist the urge to import all of 19th century slavery into this passage and become distracted and frustrated by the fact that the Lord doesn't say more 
to the arrangement of slaves and masters or servants and masters. It's true. Scripture doesn't command servants here or elsewhere to overthrow their masters, nor does he require masters to cease and desist in keeping servants. But scripture, doesn't also, scripture also doesn't commend this practice in any place. It's a difficult subject. The Lord says elsewhere in Colossians 3, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And then Paul says to the Corinthian church, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. So again, I don't want to let all the air out of the force of this command. Because the Lord does recognize that this is a vulnerable part of society. Masters often weren't kind to their house servants. They were brutal with their house servants. They didn't think of them as equals. And so, yes, he speaks to this specific demographic, and he has a special heart for them as he does for the widow, as he does for the orphan. You are a servant called to suffer. We're, of course, not in this situation. But as you think of yourselves, as you think of your situation, maybe it's not too difficult to bring this experience into the experience of your own life. How many of you feel at times or have felt at times like you have been stuck in a job, enduring the cruelty of an unbelieving boss, feeling the sting of your isolations and beliefs in the workplace, maybe simply in a corporate environment that is blatantly anti-Christian? To this you are called, Peter says in verse 21, to at times, not all the time, but to at times, like these people in the first century were, to at times suffer. To follow in his footsteps. Not the footsteps of meriting the favor of God, but the example of walking in faith in obedience to God as Jesus did. So the Bible says this morning, your suffering on account of Christ is not a mistake. Particularly the hands, the suffering that you endure at the hands of others. It's not a mistake. It's simply the way of the cross. Philippians 1, verse 27, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
Notice in this passage, Peter isn't talking about suffering brought about by your own sin. That kind of suffering is just reaping the consequences of your own actions. He's talking about suffering that is unjust. When you're doing the right thing, when you're honoring God, when you're wanting to stand up for Christ, maybe even some of our kids have experienced this in their environments in our schools. When you suffer for the name of Christ, Peter says, don't be surprised. You don't even need to run away from it. Christ has showed you the way. So I studied this text and was thinking about it this week. The question comes to my mind, why? I mean, why does it have to be this way? How can we do this? Why and how? Well, let's start with the why. Let me give three reasons for why this is the way. Peter helps us. It's not my reasons. Number one, this is grace. Verse 19, Peter says, for this is a gracious thing. It's an interesting way to say it, isn't it? A a gracious thing to suffer at the hands of unjust masters, a gracious thing? It's the same Greek word, charis, that is found throughout the New Testament. And here, it doesn't mean unmerited favor, but it means credit. Luke uses it in this way in Luke 6, 34, when he records Jesus' words. Jesus says, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what charis, what grace, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So the idea that Peter is getting across when he says this is a gracious thing is that God's favor is with those who endure for Jesus' sake. Not merit of the the salvific kind to earn God's love, but reward nonetheless. Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you, many of you know these words, blessed are those who revi- blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. God smiles with approval at the act of faith and the act of covenant love that suffering is on the account of faith in Christ. So this is grace. It's the first why. Second, this is God's method of change. So this is a little bit extra textual. It's not in this text. It's not extra biblical. It's in the Bible. But this is God's method of change. Remember uh, James chapter one, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. We looked at that passage months ago and at God's uncomfortable grace that is always, always transformative. 
And so the second why do we have to suffer, not only is it grace, does it please God as an act of covenant faithfulness, but it's God's work of transforming us. Many of you know this. And if you don't know this in this room, you need to talk to some of the people in this room who have suffered and learn from them. And then number three, this is worship and witness. We talked about this last week. I won't rehash it all. God is watching, but so is the world around us, moved by saints singing at their innocent deaths, pricked by Christians who are willing to endure for the sake of their faith. Our submission, honor, and at times our suffering is an opportunity to show Christ. That's the why. But Peter also gives us the how. Our text gives us just three words that sum up the ability to suffer. Verse 19. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. Mindful of God. There it is. So simple. And yet so hard. As we close, let me put this in Trinitarian terms. How do we suffer? How do we suffer well? Number one, we look to the Father. Last week, the call was to fear God, right? Fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God being captured by who he is and and controlled by what he has done. Well, here Peter says in verse 23, Look to the Father who judges justly. This is what fueled Jesus, knowing that that the Father would make all things right. I happen to notice what the ESV Study Bible said on this point or on this verse, and I thought it was good. It says simply this, every wrong deed in the universe will be covered by the blood of Christ or repaid justly by God at the final judgment. It's only two paths. The blood of Jesus is going to cover it, or it's going to get judged justly by the Father. So being mindful of God, look to the Father. But then, of course, look to the Son, to the suffering servant, to the one who Peter expounds here through Isaiah 53 and says, this suffering servant suffered for you. And he says all of that, he unpacks all of that, not because he doesn't think the people in this church know it. He knows that they know it, but he wants to remind them of it because he wants their hearts to be stirred by it and their wills to be steeled by it. And it's the same effect that the gospel ought to have in our lives. Mindful of God, look to the Father who judges justly, who will make all things right. Look to the Son, the suffering servant who paved the way, who gave up his own rights. And then finally, remember the Spirit. Remember the Spirit. The Spirit is not mentioned here, but he's present in all of our suffering. He's residing in all those who are his and how easily we forget him. 
Remember the Spirit who guides us into all truth, who helps us in our weakness, and therefore invites us to call out to Him in our suffering. That's how we're mindful of God. That's how we walk in obedient suffering. Brothers and sisters, you are servants called to suffer, and you have a suffering Savior who has shown the way. So hide in His wounds. Be healed by his stripes. Walk in his footsteps. Fear the Father. Love the Son. Rejoice that you have the power of his Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. As we sit here this morning in comfort, in affluence, in freedom, we recognize that these words don't land in our hearts as they did those brothers and sisters in the first century. We recognize that these words don't land in our hearts as they do in the hearts of Christians huddled in a basement in North Korea, whispering as they sing hymns to the triune God. But Father, these words are still for us. And so I ask that the gospel once again, that the work of Jesus would stir our hearts and steal our wills to walk in obedience. No matter the injustice, no matter the pushback, Father, give us the grace by your Spirit. Plant this word deep in us, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen.